What is up, guys? Another $50 came through on my Swan Bitcoin savings plan today. So I'm very excited. Still stacking sats. I like to go and just watch it. I don't have to do anything. I just like to watch it. Keep it up to date. Um, and uh, actually, I've got a, a video coming out soon. Maybe multiple videos because we went for a long time. Me and Phil uh, Geiger from Unchained Capital uh, went through their vault setup. And uh, so we were like, all right, well, let's just go ahead and record it so we can you know, show it out to people. But I'm really excited because I think this is going to be my setup for my Bitcoin, my ongoing Bitcoin savings plan is that I've got my auto buy with Swan Bitcoin, and then I'm going to have it set to auto withdrawal to my uh, multi-sig uh, vault at Unchained Capital. So I've just got it set up completely. It's under multiple keys. I've got a backup in case of, you know, something going wrong or I lose a key or something like that. And, um... Uh, and then it's all set up to automatically work without me having to touch it. So I'm really excited. Uh, that will all be dropping soon. But today we've got a chat from jo well, with Josh from the Bottom Shelf Bitcoin podcast. Uh, there are a lot of great episodes of that show. I highly recommend it if you're uh, trying to explore and get all the best Bitcoin shows. Bottom Shelf is definitely one to check out. And Josh is an awesome guy. In fact, he just did one on Light Night uh, with uh, the guy from Satoshi's Games. So if you haven't really kind of dug into Light Night yet um, or seen their future plans, that's a really great episode. Uh, I'll drop that in the, in the show notes. Uh, so he invited me on uh, just to kind of talk about the Federal Reserve System, uh, the, the insanity that, that is uh, fractional reserve banking and how it leads to these boom and bust cycles and how it leads to the theft of enormous amounts of capital into the banking system uh, or, or to the financial elite, essentially. So uh, we talked all about it. It was a really great conversation. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump in. This is a, uh, a chat with Josh from Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. This is episode 55. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host, Josh Humphrey, and today with me, I've got Guy Swan, host of the Cryptoconomy Podcast. Guy, welcome. What's up, man? Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Um, so you're, you want to kind of give, or I'll, I'll, just, I'll just explain it. Um, your podcast, basically, uh, for the most part anyways, you go through and read articles uh, about Bitcoin out loud, and then you have some other episodes that are uh, kind of your take and uh, you've done some interviews as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably like somewhere between 20 and 30 interviews or whatever. Yeah. The general idea was to um, like where it all started from was the reading. Um, and it was just to get like there's such an ocean of awesome content and ideas and so much information just written down about Bitcoin. And the flood is just kind of nonstop. And I always, for, I don't know, three or four years, I was just like, why doesn't somebody turn these into audio so I can listen to them? 
um, because, you know, I was just consume podcasts and audiobooks like crazy, but who has the time to sit down and read it all? Um, and then finally one day I was just like, I just kind of got fed up with it and I was like, well, I'll do it. And that's where it all started from. But then I do a lot of, um, just kind of re-explaining the ideas and expanding on them. And of course, interviewing people, mostly, mostly the authors, um, to, you know, just chat about the ideas and stuff. But yeah, it's been, it's been a blast. I love, I love the show. I do it every day and I don't know. It's just what I do. <laughs> I spent all my life and all my time and everything working on Bitcoin and learning Bitcoin anyway. It's like, well, I might as well try to try to figure out how to do it for real, like, and actually sustain it. Yeah. I, and I'm grateful because the funny thing is I, I don't remember exactly when I found your podcast, but, um, I think I'd been doing this show for, I don't know, six or seven months. Mm-hmm. And I really considered it cause I was, I was thinking the same thing, like, there's so many articles out there and I can just, you know, I'm used to taking podcasts and setting them at two times speed and I can <laughs> yeah. do those while I'm mowing or doing the dishes or whatever. And I was like, man, I wish, but, but most of the, um, text to speech, you, you know, it's kind of a roundabout. You can do some text to speech on some things, but it's always sounds weird. Yeah. Um, it's a little the, off. One, one the cadence, day, it's just not human, you know? Yeah, one day one day maybe it will it will make me obsolete and I'll be ecstatic that that happens just because uh, I can go to just doing my own content and and that sort of stuff. But uh, right now it's all it's all garbage. It'll be when I'm happy with it that I think I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so anyways, I and I was really considering it and then I found yours and I was like, oh, perfect. I don't have to do this. Somebody else already did it. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I, I listen to your stuff all the time. Um, it just, it makes it so much easier. But so how did you get into Bitcoin? Were you, did you come into it from like the technology side, from the Austrian economic side, from the cryptography? I mean, what, what was it for you that brought you in? Actually a little bit of all three. Um, uh, when I, I tell this story and like talk to like with my brother and stuff about it and kind of reminisce on it, it it's kind of funny that it was it, like it kind of land like Bitcoin was just like at the perfect moment of all the things that the two of us were getting into and reading about at the time. Um, because I had always been a nerd, you know, I'd always like love technology and uh, BitTorrent in particular. Uh, and file sharing had fascinated me for a long time in like how the internet made that possible. Um, and I was slowly getting into the implications of that from the cryptography side and like a VPN and like privacy online and tour and that sort of thing. So I was kind of going down the rabbit hole a little bit from a technology standpoint. But then my brother was majoring in economics at the time and we were living together. So he would come back and, um, like, he was constantly seeing contradictions in what he what he was being taught, and he's one of those people in class that like will annoy the, the crap out of you that like like he won't just like accept what is being taught. You know, if, if somebody like kind of hits something that sounds like it contradicts, he's he's gonna he's gonna sp- he's gonna pick speak up. He's gonna be like, I'm pretty sure that that can't be true with what you taught us yesterday, unless uh unless you're unless you either explained it wrong or these are applying to two different things and like he would actually get into debates with his professors and i think i think they a little bit hated him Uh, (laughs) but he would come home and then he would explain it to me and be like do you not see the contradiction here and then we would go back and forth and so we kind of went down an economics rabbit hole uh we started following like warren mosler who um uh basically argued the 
complete antithesis of Austrian economics. Um, it was funny because like Keynesian economics or, well, I take that back, mainstream economics, like what is generally taught is this weird amalgamation between accepting that there are some certain like economic axioms and then also entertaining the idea that there has to be government control and that modern monetary theory to some degree is true. So it's like it's got the most contradictions because it doesn't actually fall on the debt doesn't matter and the currency doesn't matter. And it also doesn't completely reject that economic principles and the fact that there's real scarcity and real things going on doesn't matter. So it's it's got the most contradictions. Uh, so we first went down the MMT rabbit hole, the whole the debt doesn't matter. It's all just a number, quote unquote, we owe it to ourselves and we can just print money indefinitely. It's just points on a scoreboard. And but that something always felt wrong about that um, because, you know, it, it basically rejects all the fundamental economic principles. So we just would my brother and I would just debate and debate and debate and we get drunk and we debate economics and then he would learn something new and then he'd be like, is this could this make any sense at all? And then at some point we stumbled upon Milton Friedman and then Hayek, and then uh, Mises, all the all the you know key Austrian economics guys, and it was just like, oh my god, this finally makes so much sense. This is so much simpler, and there are real principles of the real story. What's really happening with resources and money is just a proxy. If you start fudging with numbers, all you do is just hide the truth of what's actually happening. Um, like the, the money itself is arbitrary, you know, it is just points. So those points either mean something or we just try to get, you know, like if there's two basketball teams and one's exceptionally better than the other, but you know, because it looks bad that the other team just got obliterated, you just give them a hundred extra points. Like that doesn't tell us anything about the game, right? You know, right. there's something real going on. There is one team that's excellent at this this game system that we have set up and another team that sucks at it only by having the points actually mean something. Do we understand that knowledge or do we get that knowledge? And economics is very much the same way. The government has made it their job to fudge the numbers. So things look good. And instead we're just covering up the fact that there is something of real value over here. And there's something that is not valuable or something that's productive versus something that's destructive. And we're just going to blanket invest in all of it rather than pick the productive things versus the destructive ones. Um, and uh, we went down that rabbit hole and somehow in the middle of all of that, while I was interested in Tor and BitTorrent and then we're arguing Austrian economics, somebody sent him a link and said, you should probably check out this Bitcoin thing. And I, I remember that night we were we had we fell down the rabbit hole so fast because it was everything we'd been talking about for like a year like in an economic experiment like in in a, in a software a, a protocol a decentralized protocol like BitTorrent built on cryptography like Tor and basically embodying and codifying the principles of Austrian economics there was nothing that could so satisfy what we wanted to do at the time or learn about. And uh, it was not, I remember the sun coming up the next morning and we were still talking about it. Like we, it was all night. We never long. went to bed. We never went to bed. 
Like we were just <laughs> stuck and we were fascinated and we were reading the white paper. Like it, that like the second it hit our radar, we were just gone. Um, and that was like way back in, uh, 2010 or 2011. I don't even remember now. It's been a long time. Like I have just been consumed. I haven't even, I've not left, you know, like, like I'm, I'm still there. Like, like it was just like from dawn, I finally just took a nap and then, you know, here we are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. So it's, yeah, it's been a wild, wild ride, but yeah, I would definitely say it was all three. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I think, you know, and, and for me, it was one of those things. And I've, I've said this on the show before where, uh, for me, I kind of, saw it, was introduced to it by a friend, kind of saw it from the censorship resistance side mm-hmm. uh, and and kind of sort of grasped the technicals of it and and then kind of put it away. And then, um, I don't know, a year maybe later, I read uh, Rothbard's For a New Liberty. And, and when Ooh, I saw, one. and when I saw, um, just all the the ways that the the government kind of mucked up the money and everything i just suddenly went oh okay now let's go back to bitcoin because this makes way more sense now yeah yeah um Um, as as far as like why we need it and stuff so i think that's kind of what i wanted to talk about with you today because i think i think it's easy for us who who kind of breathe this stuff every day to get off into the technical side of things and um and I, and i think there's definitely a case to be made for um the privacy side the censorship resistance side of um you know trying to avoid the surveillance uh of, of our finances mm-hmm. as a form of free speech um but i think there's also just a side where um people don't understand um, why they need Bitcoin, why, why yeah. Bitcoin matters it, just from a like good money. You know, I, I, just, I think you go out on the street. Well, not today, I guess, but you know, a month ago or maybe a month from now <laughs> when people are out of their houses again um, <laughs> and you just pick a random person, like they, th- they think they know how the economy works, but if you start asking real questions, they don't really. Yeah. Um, and and I'm afraid, you know, we were talking about this on our at our meetup, uh, which is virtual now. Um, mm-hmm. Last night, you know, talking about how my fear is that everyone thinks that right now the economy is messed up because uh, coronavirus happened, and so we shut down everybody's ability to work and go do all these things, and that that's what tanked the economy. Yeah. Um, but rather than like it was built on this shaky house of cards foundation and has been jacked up for a long time. And this just kind of revealed for what it was. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, that, that's one of the big things and that it drives me crazy. And it's kind of the always been the case throughout history too, though, is that, you know, when, when you build these like huge monetary imbalances and these like, uh, you manipulate the pricing indicators to force the economy in a direction that is unsustainable um, or force them to make investments that um, simply will never pay off. Like they just never made sense. 
um, very, very similar to as if the uh, uh, really good basketball team and the really shitty basketball team had the exact same amount of investors, you know, like because we based it on our points, you know, um, uh, that's that's to some degree. That's a decent analogy to what's actually happening is we're investing in bad productivity and bad enterprises um, to the tunes of trillions and trillions of dollars because someone we're allowing someone to manipulate the point system that is the only source of information as to whether or not this is a productive enterprise, whether or not this is actually useful and valuable to the economy or destructive. Um, and historically, all the collapses almost always get a scapegoat because what they do is they build over time this huge imbalance. But when everything's going great, nobody notices it because it's only when it's put under strain. It's like a uh, Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile. What, what, the, the concept is that you're building increased fragility. So as soon as any little bad thing happens, it results in complete collapse. Whereas if you were building uh, robustness, if you were anti-fragile and you're actually responding to these pricing indicators and the reality of what's going on under the surface like of the economy, well, then you would easily weather these storms. It would not be an economic collapse. It would not be a global depression level catastrophe um and we actually saw this like way before covid back in september of 2019 they were already having to pump hundreds of billions of dollars into the repo market because we were we were primed for this collapse and it was going to happen whether or not it was a really bad windstorm or an earthquake or a global virus it was really irrelevant that's just the catalyst to exposing the underlying economic reality which is the fact that we had leveraged ourselves 40x what productivity we actually had um we had mortgaged all of our mortgages and we couldn't pay the original mortgage. <laughs> That's essentially where. Okay, so let's let's unpack this real quick. Like practically, when when you say these things, like I I, I have an idea what you're saying, but like let's let's pretend like Joe Normie, who's never uh, read anything about Austrian economics, doesn't really know how um, the government plays with the economy mm-hmm. and repo markets or anything like that. Like, w- what's actually happening? Okay, so an analogy I've used on the show before um, that I think really ex- does a good job of illustrating the whole boom-bust cycle, um, particularly in the context of a credit boom and bust, one where uh, we all think we're wealthy because we're trading each other's debts, but we actually can't pay those debts back. So nominally, so like in numbers, things look great, but under the surface, nobody's going to be able to afford it. Um, and a great way to do that is, and this is actually uh, uh, from Agorist view on um, in a conversation we had. Uh, that's my brother, by the way. Um, uh, uh, a conversation we had, he came up with a really good analogy that, like, I think shows what fractional reserve banking does. So, what fractional reserve banking means is that you don't have to have all the reserves to actually loan out new money. In other words, if you put $100 in the bank, the uh, essentially the bank, depending on the reserve requirements are all over the place. It can be 90%, it can be 10%. Right now it's basically 0%. Um, but they're able to loan out $200 against that $100. $900 against that $100. They're able to issue new money that doesn't exist that someone has to pay them back. And at the same time, they guarantee your $100 deposit as if they haven't given it to somebody else, which they technically have. Um, 
And the best way to do it is to take money out of the equation altogether because money is just, just obscures it. Um, money just hides what's actually happening, right? Money is just a proxy. You can't really do anything with money. It's just an accounting system. Like the paper money is useless. It's actually less useful than paper. You can't eat it. I can't, you know, if everybody stopped accepting paper tomorrow, like paper money, well, then I couldn't do anything with it. I couldn't even write notes on it because it's already got ink all over it. Like it's completely useless. But if everybody stopped buying and selling cars, I could still get in my car and go places. Like I wouldn't get rid of my car immediately or my house. Like it's a useful thing. Um, so if you look at the goods, think about it in cars. The fractional reserve banking system is as if, let's say one person has a car. I have a car. You have a car. You go to the bank and you deposit that car. And the bank is just a giant garage. And they issue you back a car certificate um, just so that you have the value of that car. But in secret, without telling you, well, in the fractional reserve sense, they actually do it completely openly and it's conceived as like perfectly normal for them to do this. They issue another car certificate to somebody else for the same car. There's only one car. You've got a car certificate and now they've given another one out to somebody else. But as a loan, they owe the value of that car. They owe another car to the bank for no reason. Just the bank has the ability to do, to do this. And now they have a car certificate and they're going to use it to put an extension on their house. So they pay that car certificate to uh, a contractor and that guy takes the car certificate and he deposits it into the bank. And now that car certificate is used to issue out another loan to somebody else. And now there's three car certificates and this goes on and on and on. And every new car certificate becomes another deposit at the big bank garage and um, uh, and then is used to pay somebody else and then becomes another deposit that use, get, you, gets used to back another car loan. But the thing is, is that the only way this works is if nobody has to go get the cars out of the bank. If no, as long as nobody redeems their car certificates, it works great because everybody thinks the car certificate is valuable. But you do this 20 times and you realize there are 20 people expecting to have the value of a car and there's still only one car in the bank. So what happens is you get the perception of all of this economic activity and you get these people start making plans. People start uh, planning to use this car in five years to go on a vacation and they start booking trips. They start uh, uh, buying tickets for events um, and all this economic activity looks like it's going to be great in four or five years. And everybody's making these plans to use these cars to go places and do things for vacations and business trips and conferences and all this great stuff. And now the restaurant next to the hotel hires more people. The hotel opens up more rooms, puts an expansion on their thing. The, the, you know, the, um, the, Airbnbs um, start buying more real estate and putting more um, more locations on the Airbnb. Uh, but the whole economy looks super busy and like all this value and activity is being produced. When in the reality, when everybody starts goes and grabs the car, when finally it actually has to come due, the one guy goes and takes the car out of the bank and now nobody can do their trip. He's the only one that gets to go. And now the restaurant suddenly is like, oh, crap, the hotel just canceled 30 bookings. 
Now we have to fire two employees. All this economic activity was fake because it was based on one car, but it was 20 cars worth of activity that was being set up as if it all existed. And the, the kicker of all of this is at the end of it, everybody owes 20 cars to the bank. Everybody owes the bank for this because they printed car certificates as loans. They faked the fact that they had 20 cars that they didn't have. And now everyone is indebted to the bank and everyone was basing all of their futures off resources that never existed. And that is literally how our monetary system works. And it is tens of trillions of dollars in balance that gets perpetuated by manipulating the numbers. And it takes decades for us to realize that there was an imbalance because none of the economic activity is real. It's all just based on lies about prices. Yeah, and when you say it like that, it just, it kind of, I think in the normal person, it kind of builds up this rage at the, <laughs> at the blatant fraud, right? Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. But it's totally legal because they're the ones that make the rules. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've written, and it's funny, like you have all these bank runs in like the late 1890s, I mean, uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, um, like uh, in response to like, there's these bank runs and stuff because essentially on like a micro level, banks were always doing this. Banks have always leveraged themselves. Whenever they end up have a ton, ton of money in the vault or actually a ton of gold in the vault at the time, they almost always found out that after 10 years of stability or 20 years of complacency or whatever it is, they're like, you know, we could issue twice as many certificates for gold as we actually have in gold and notice that only about 5% ever need it at any one time. So, you know, just like cars, we could, we could trade out 20 car keys, even though we've only got 10 cars. And because only two people need it at any one time, we just won't tell anybody. Um, so that's what would lead to these bank runs and these huge collapses. Um, but the thing is, is they're incredibly short-lived because they're specific to those institutions. That's why they're called banknotes. They were actually specific to the bank and their value would be based on the solvency of that bank. So if Bank of America lied about their gold reserves, their banknotes would be worthless. But Chase banknotes wouldn't be, BB&T's banknotes wouldn't be because they weren't the ones that cheated. Um, and this is actually critical to the economy that this reserve the 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 lies of how many reserves is not is not covered up it's as if it's it's mount gox you know like the the bitcoin exchange they they ran fractional reserve they didn't have all the money but they pretended they did so they guaranteed everybody's deposits but they collapsed in 6 months because they're working under sound money they can't sustain that uh, in 1913 the um uh, federal reserve act was passed and it was a, a cabal of banks. Like it was a basically the oligopoly of banks at the day. It was like six or seven. Like it was actually J.P. Morgan, actually like the guy J.P. Morgan, um, uh, 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 Carnegie. Um, I, I, I can't remember everybody who was involved. The, the names escape me right now. Um, there's a fun book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Um, but they met in secret, drafted up the bankers, drafted up this bill that institutionalized the ability to loan out money that didn't exist because who wouldn't want 
an interest payment on money they didn't have. I mean, think about how crazy that is. You can loan out somebody else's car and make interest on it and just not tell them. Like, that's essentially what they're doing. <laughs> um, like, it, w- it would be as if I had zero dollars. It's like, that sucks. I'm broke. But, you know, if I could write a law that says I could loan out $100,000 into existence and make a 1% interest on it, well, I got $10,000 you know, $10, worth of income. I mean, $1,000 worth of income. That's great. Maybe I should do that to a million dollars. Now I got even more income. What did I have for that income? Nothing. I just have the government privilege of issuing new money as a loan. Um, and uh, that's essentially what they did. And it didn't come out that it was actually written by, um, it was actually sold. And this is the this is the beauty and evil of politics all in one. It's, it just perfectly shows how, how this whole system is just insane. Um is that it was sold by the politicians. You know, obviously they just, they just bought a couple of politicians. Politicians are just marketers, um, marketers for government control. Um, and they sold it as a bank, as a break the bank trust. They sold it as an anti-banking is that we're going to stop these banks from these bad practices. And it was the banks that wrote the bill and funded the politicians. It got enacted in 1913 and it wasn't until like seven eight years later or so that they found out that all these guys um, met in secret. They all did it under, under fake names. They, they rode on train rides in the middle of the night to this place so that nobody would see them. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, it was, it, it, it was real life conspiracy theory. It was absolute batshit that all this happened. And it's like eight or nine years later, later it was already normal. It was already law. Nobody cared. Yeah. And that's the system we've had since. And it's, I mean, I would argue that, um, I mean, I guess they had just, you know, account, handwritten accounting, but I think now it's even worse with the, with the digital dollars, oh, right? Yeah. Because, you know, the level they don't have to fake. keep cash on hand. They don't have mm-hmm. to keep gold reserves. Um, it's all numbers in a database. And so, um, it, it can go on much longer because it's not, it isn't the car, right? Nobody has to come and say like, Oh, I've got to, I, I need to actually use this car for something. They've, they can, um, the bank can just keep rewriting yeah. numbers in the database and that can go to the other bank's database. Yeah. It's as if we're all trading in car certificates and because there's no underlying good to, uh, they're indistinguishable. They're indistinguishable. There's no car to redeem it to. So we'll never, it's just so much easier to just keep printing more certificates. You know, like if you did it with any other good, you wouldn't be able to do it. It's, money is the only one that enables this because money is a good unto itself um, uh, because its value is in the ability to um, incorruptibly account for um, other economic activity. Um and because of that, it's like you couldn't do that with bread, you know, like when your bread ran out on your shelves in the grocery store, they couldn't sell bread certificates. You can't eat that. <laughs> you know, it's not a replacement for bread. So the bread certificates would devalue and the bread would be valuable. But if the bank can issue a fake money note that looks exactly like a real money note, which is just a digital point in your bank account, you'll never know. You'll just never like the economy is screaming at us right now that we have a huge imbalance, that we are over leveraged, that we have massive amounts of debt that nobody can afford, and they are doing everything they can 
so that we don't see it because it's so much more comfortable to not admit that to ourselves. Yeah, I feel like it's like um, you're riding on a bike and you keep loading up bags of stuff that are heavy <laughs> on one handlebar, right? And then you just keep leaning as hard as you can the other way yeah. to keep the bike going instead of just admitting that your whole bike is off balance. That's a great analogy. I like that. Um, so so let's kind of go, I, you know, I think we have some stuff that, that happened in 19 and is now happening in 20, but um, let's kind of go back and do a broad overview of like 08 because that's that's kind of what's, or, or maybe not like a huge overview, but kind of talk briefly about what happened in 2008 because I feel like that's kind of right when, when Bitcoin was launched um, mm -hmm. and, and that, um, I mean, that was intentional. You can go, uh, Dan Held's got a great series um, called Planting Bitcoin that you can, um, did, you, did you do a version of that? Um, I've done some of it in audio. I don't think I've done the whole okay. thing because it was like a series of four that he then released in like a full thing. I think yeah. he did the audio oh, okay. uh, of the of the full piece. I think I did one of the pieces, like the first one or something. Yeah, but he's got a good series about like uh, why Satoshi kind of released everything like in the environment that he did. Mm -hmm. um, so I recommend everybody go check that out. But um, kind of what was going on in in the in the financial world in 2008 and, and why why the crash in 08. And because um, I think the government's response and what they did has implications for what we're going through right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We've gone through the same. This is almost identical to what happened in 99 with the dot-com bubble and then the housing bubble and then now the everything bubble, the stock and derivative asset bubble. Um, but it's it's been a series of reinflating the same imbalance. Um, like the first one is essentially, you know, we got a mortgage um, and, you know, at 10% interest, that we couldn't afford like collectively over the economy. Um, and then it looked like, you know, all the price perceived prices go up because we're, we're all getting that mortgage or whatever and trading these debts very much like the car certificates. Um, and then suddenly the economy tries to correct for it. And there's only so long that those imbalances can go on and you have this big crash. Uh, but then instead of actually letting us deleverage and letting letting the people who couldn't afford the mortgage simply default and reallocate those resources to good, productive endeavors, what do they do? They take out another mortgage at a lower manipulated interest rate and pay off the previous one. So we've mortgaged our mortgage. And then we do that in housing. Like what happens is that like they, they can't really completely control the market. All they can do is fudge like those fundamental numbers. So in 2008, the reason it like was so specific to housing um, was mostly because the government was um, essentially insuring uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to a big degree who were buying mortgage backed securities. And they were offering, they were basically setting uh, non market interest rates and loan requirements for mortgages to help people get the quote unquote American dream. And uh, in setting interest rates, interest rates lower than what they actually are, like interest rates should be based on savings. You know, if we have $100,000 in savings, well, then it should be really costly to borrow $200,000, right? Because we've only got $100,000 for the resources. 
Um, and the market would necessarily price that incredibly high because that's an enormous amount of risk. We're, you know, 2x what we actually have. Um, but what the government can do is, and with the fractional reserve banking system, is since you can just issue it from nothing, it's not really any cost to the bank. And it's not really any cost to the Federal Reserve to print more digits, just like you said. Um, and because of that, they can manipulate the interest rate. So even though that interest rate might have been 50%, they can do it at 5 and make it appear as if there is no risk in the economy and um, inflate an entire industry that wouldn't be inflated otherwise. And right, because interest rate should be a reflection of the relative risk. Yeah, you can't build a house with trees that we haven't yet cut down. You can only build a house with actual boards and actual nails. So, so if you start 100,000 houses worth of construction projects and you only ever had 50,000 houses worth of resources, um, and the, those loans are explicitly what allowed you to start all those those houses, well, then you're going to get halfway through all those houses and find out that you got to cancel half of them. Um, and that's essentially what happens, is you build for eight or nine years um, and then find out that you have to cancel all the projects. <laughs> um, the, 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 the woods and the nails and the, the hammers, all that stuff just wasn't there. And you see this exaggerated in markets, most specifically that have the lowest or the loosest terms on loans. And it creates massive inflation isolated to certain markets. And that's why you don't really get consumer, um, like retail inflation, nearly as fast as you get stuff in housing because it's collateralized and the prices of houses go up. So it's not as risky. We'll do a lower interest loan. But because of that, you get huge 200%, 300% inflation in the price of houses. Same with medical care. Huge price inflation in medical care because medical debt is um, basically handed out um, by you know institutions that don't actually have the resources. Um, and there's a lot of other reasons, but that's a huge one. Um, and then same in uh, uh, education. Student loans guaranteed by the government. Like, doesn't matter if you're loan worthy, doesn't matter if we have any resources, just make a loan out of thin air, give it to them at 2% interest. Um, and what do you, what do you see? Price of education has gone up 4X since like the year 1998 or something like that. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Does it cost four times as many resources, people and time to educate somebody today? No, not even close. We have YouTube. I can learn anything I want online for free sitting at my home. It doesn't cost more resources. Why does it pay? Why do we pay four times the price? I'll it, do you one better. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a graduate program right now, and I still go to YouTube to actually learn the material. <laughs> so I'm paying at, to, 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 to get, get the, the stamp of approval. Yep. And, and then I still use the free resources to actually learn all the stuff. Because it's better, it's more interesting, and they have more incentive to catch your attention, to actually explain right. it well. Love it. Yeah. Perfect example. Um, but, uh, and essentially in, uh, you know, the late 90s, this all, all this cheap debt flooded into, um, it's just rare that you inflate the same bubble. It, usually the market is good at saying, okay, this was not sustainable, so let's try it over here when the prices are still being manipulated. So in the 90s, we had it in dot-com. We had it in new technology. Internet was going to change the world, and it's easily fueled by the extra hype. There was always going to be a hype cycle with the internet, just like there's a hype cycle for Bitcoin. New technology just tends to do that. Um, but it's grossly exaggerated by cheap, cheap debt 
and the fact that we don't have real prices in the market for capital. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, so after that bubble blew up, we moved into housing and they started, um, uh, you know, guaranteeing, uh, loans and all these banks that would never have made these risky loans before could turn around, package them into securities and sell them off to other institutions, other bigger institutions up the ladder. And then they would sell them to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And then they had the perceived guarantee that the Fed was going to bail them out. So there's this whole industry of banks and institutions loaning out mortgages that they even know are risky. They would never do otherwise, but they do it because they can immediately, they don't want to hold these mortgages. They want to get rid of them ASAP because they know they're, they're going to bleed them dry if they're actually holding them. It's, it's, a, it's a game of hot potato. Um, as mm. long as we can sell it to the next guy, we can sell it to that next bank and that next bank can sell it to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and that and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac can get bailed out by the government. We're good as long as we're not holding the potato when, you know, somebody calls to stop the game. Uh, and that's what happened. And then all that blew up. And, and the key thing here is that all of this is because we don't have sound money is because we have a central party that can manipulate all the key prices in the economy. They can manipulate the interest rate, which is the price of resources across time. What's the, what's the cost to use up resources today that we have not yet produced? Um, and, uh, and because we have no validation, we have no way to prove how much money there actually is um, and how many resources there are because money is the only thing that could rightfully tell us that. It's, 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 it's so crazy when you begin to really dig into how this thing works, how divorced our monetary system is from the truth of the underlying economics. Um, and we just don't have the mechanisms to make sense of it because there's somebody fudging the numbers at every single important step up the ladder. Right. Cause, uh, oh, cred, I'm, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on the name of the piece, um, that basically talks about how price, the price is system? our, imp- go ahead. The use of knowledge in society. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's the one. Yep. Love that one. I recommend that one every, any time I can possibly recommend it. Um, and he has another one, a Hayek, um, has another one, the pretense of knowledge. Um, and they're both just, they're amazing. I mean, it's funny is like some, some economists and people like, like, uh, uh, and network, uh, and like kind of game theory scientists are kind of rediscovering it now. And it's like, Hayek wrote about this crap in the seventies, you know, like none of this is new. Um, and even before that, um, like there's like I pencil. I love that piece by Leonard Reed. Yeah. Just showing how oversimplified we generally think of the economy, but that there's nobody in the world who can make a pencil like nobody. What we do, all the pieces that come together to make one of those basic ass essentially free because it's so cheap. Number two, wooden pencils. The number, the number of different countries, the locations in the world, the different minerals having to be mined, the, the machines that go into those, the, the workers that have to get fed, the expertise of mining, of milling, of uh, making the machines and the gears and the engines that run them all, all of this stuff, stuff that's involved is literally layers of billions upon billions of interactions that make it possible. And the thing is practically free. It's so cheap. This is the orchestration 
of a free economy is one of the most elaborate and fascinating systems of cooperation that exists on the planet. And we just pass it off. It's like, oh, evil prices. Oh, Amazon. Like, <laughs> like it just, yeah. we so grossly misunderstand these huge complex systems and think, my favorite quote um, uh, from Hayek is, uh, the, the curious case of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. The, the case of economics is to humble us and prove to us how stupid and arrogant we really are. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's just amazing how much we do not understand one of the most extraordinary aspects of human civilization. Um, and just, we just think we're going to design, we're just going to engineer it better. You know, we're just going to fudge the numbers over here and that's going to make people do the right economic choices. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. I, I love that piece though. Use of knowledge in society. Yeah. I cannot recommend yeah. it enough. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so what was the, you know, so we had 2008, we have this, uh, everybody is basically hot potato passing the buck until everything catches up and then, and then what happens and what's the government's response? The government basically has to, on their perceived uh, guarantee that like, oh, we're here to you know help everybody get their mortgage. They basically have to call in on that uh, gamble um, and they have to bail everybody out. So because there was no, there are no economic resources actually to back all this debt, um, they have to print the, they have to print the money. Um, and that's where QE comes in, quantitative easing. It is essentially, it's, it's a whole bunch of various ways, QE, um, repo, all of these things that they offer up quote unquote liquidity just means that when nobody is coming to buy these resources or, or these assets because they're not actually valuable, the government will come in and uh, essentially buy them for you. Um, so they're printing money. Um, the, Fed, the Fed has a, you know, they have a huge balance sheet and they just create money out of thin air. They just put money into a bank account and they offer it up as loan for 0% interest or Way, way lower interest rate, you know, 1%, 0.25%, whatever it is, um, as if there's just trillions of dollars in surplus resources sitting somewhere. Like this is what the, if the actual market were doing this. That's what it would mean. If, if we were offering 1% loans for anything, it would mean that we have such a giant surplus that people are just trying to get rid of their stuff. Is, is that what we have? Do we have giant surpluses and everybody's so freaking rich that nobody needs to work we could all just take six months off and do nothing because we just have excess everywhere no that is not our situation but that is what the federal reserve is pretending is our situation um and so they do qe nobody's going to buy these mortgage-backed securities so we will um uh, we'll just put money in our bank account and we'll buy it from you uh nobody's going to offer you loans you know overnight to meet your reserves for all these loans that are now you know defaulting and uh, all these crazy situations. Everybody sees that there's huge risk in the market. Okay, well, we'll just put money in our bank account and we'll loan it to you. Um, it's all just various terms and uh, a hodgepodge of conditions on how and why they print money. Uh, and it's gotten crazy absurd 
this time around because now they're buying corporate bonds. They're loaning to businesses. They're, I mean, they, they don't even, they have no inhibitions this time. They're buying up equities. They're buying up uh, treasuries, like securities, the whole, the whole thing, just all the way up the ladder. Now they're just throwing money at people. I just got money in my bank account. <laughs> Nobody had it. It didn't exist anywhere. They're just printing it and giving it to people. Yeah, so that that's kind of what I've noticed this time around is like, I feel like last time they um, tried to make it seem like they weren't just printing money. Like they called mm-hmm. it QE so they could it was say, oh, this isn't just do it. It was a loan, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. And and now it's like they're just being blatant about it. Like, like they don't care. Yeah, I think it's because they've just run out of their toolkit because we mortgaged our way out of the previous problem. Um, they've basically run to the end of their rope. Um, and they know that the fallout from this one is going to be so bad that they can't get away with just bailing out the corporations and just bailing out the giant institutions and their cronies. Uh, so they have to put some money in everybody else's bank account to keep up perception that they're doing this for us. Um, and at the same time that even if they, even if they bailed out all the other ones, there's going to be so much hurt in the rebalancing for the middle class and the lower classes. Um, they, they know they'd have huge political unrest on their hands, but unfortunately it's easy to buy people. Um, and the more ignorant they are, the easier it is to do. And unfortunately, you know, how many, how many hours of schooling and education did you get on the nature of money? and monetary policy and sound versus soft money in school? Very little. I had one uh, economics class in college. Well, I, I think I took one semester in high school that I mostly slept through. <laughs> and uh, and then in college, I had one summer session course. And the whole time I was just watching, when I, when I watched him explain this like boom and bust cycle from like the mainstream economics point of view i just went this doesn't make sense like why don't you just let the thing stop interfering with it yeah let the you know it's like i just looked at it like you know as a parent you know when your kid's little you try and protect them from things but at some point you just got to let them fail to learn it on their own yeah right and the same thing like why does the government keep interfering with the business thing because that encourages them to go back out there and, and make the risky business decisions, make the bad calls and whatever. Nobody ever gets punished. And you don't, I don't want people to get hurt. Right. Yeah. But every time that they, you know, protect people from getting hurt, they encourage them to take riskier behavior. So the hurt the next time is a bigger hurt that they're having to protect them from. And if you had just let them fail the first time, it wouldn't have been as bad. Yeah. Um, and so, but I was a, a microbiology major and so I had the one class and I was like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to answer, you know, regurgitate the information they want for the multiple choice test and move along and do the things that I'm actually interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's generally the case. Um, in fact, I'm surprised there was anything in high school. Um, I, I did not get, I could not have told you the first thing about money after getting out of school. Even my economics class didn't teach me about money. They taught me about like they talked about supply and demand, 
um, which was fascinating to me actually. And it was the one thing that I, I really valued out of that class was that it seemed super intuitive to me. Um, and, uh, uh, I really enjoyed it, but think about how critical the function of money is to society and that we just don't learn anything about it. I mean, just nothing. Um, like, I mean, did, did we even learn how to balance a budget? Like, like, isn't education supposed to be so that we can function in society? You know, like, like where is, where is the one thing that everyone has to do? How, how is that most critical thing? The one thing that is definitely not taught or taught to such a low degree that it's foreign to us when we are all out on our own. Um, but I love the point that you bring up about how um, uh, contractions in the economy, like to bail them out, is to reinforce the bad behavior. The reason the economy is anti-fragile, the reason it benefits from volatility and um, stressors is specifically because it adapts when that volatility and those stressors arise. Um, and that is explicitly in disincentivizing or punishing irresponsible or unsustainable behavior. So when a bank leverages in, leverages themselves too far, they are supposed to go out of business if a hurricane comes in and wipes them out because we don't want an economy that can't survive a hurricane. Hurricanes happen. If we leverage ourselves to the point that we can't weather one, we've caused ourselves undue, pointless pain. Um, and then when those people are bailed out, why would they stop doing that behavior? Why what, would, what, what benefit do we get? The contraction is there to kick the irresponsible out of the business market. And even better is that it benefits explicitly the people who were responsible, the people who did have the insurance policy for when the hurricane came that did have savings. Why? Because now they get all of this capital of these huge unsustainable businesses at fire sale bankruptcy prices. Their savings is finally rewarded. Instead, we force the savers to pay for it by bailing out the other ones and keeping prices high, which were inflated to begin with. Because no one was accounting for the fact that hurricanes happen, that coronavirus happens, and the balance gets worse and worse. The behaviors get worse and worse. The culture gets worse and worse. We become crazy consumerist. Like we, these are these are micro influences that happen billions and trillions of times every time we are considering taking out a loan or buying on credit instead. Zero percent down, zero percent interest for twelve months. That's not possible. That is not possible in a balanced economy. Nobody sells that. That is that is an economy with cheap money with bailouts. And that has had 20 years of the government fudging the numbers. Ask your grandmother if she ever got a 0% loan. She didn't. Yeah. That was not a thing until that, that that's simply not a thing with real resources and real prices. That is a huge product of government manipulation and fake of unsound money of fake money. Um, and that is the value. That's what Bitcoin fixes is that a with Bitcoin at the base layer, at the foundation of a new system to replace this one, all of those imbalances become impossible because you can't make a fake Bitcoin. You can't make a, a bread, just like you can't make a bread certificate that 
you can eat like real bread, you can't make a Bitcoin certificate that can be redeemed for real Bitcoin. You last as long as Mt. Gox managed. Five months, six months tops. As soon as people start to withdraw, the Bitcoin balance cannot be cheated. And in doing so, you get real prices. You get real information about the economy and you do not have these decade-long $20 trillion imbalances that then have to be fixed all at once when we have to cancel 5.6 million in-progress housing projects because we found out there was no wood. That's crazy. Yeah. Just trying to imagine those kind of numbers. Yeah. I mean, it's the... <laughs> the 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 numbers are so the fact that we're even talking about trillions of dollars is ridiculous a Gigi in his 21 lessons i'm um, reading back through it um uh, and listening back through it actually because i'm finishing up the audiobook for him um I, I love the whole it has a section on just how badly we misunderstand numbers and that uh you know a million seconds ago was like uh, 11 days, 11 and a half days ago or something like that. And then a billion seconds is like, uh, I can't remember. It's like 20 or 30 years or something like that. And then a trillion seconds ago, Manhattan was under like 500 feet of ice. <laughs> <laughs> like we just have no concept of yeah, how wow. big these numbers are. And we're talking, when we're talking about this on like a global scale, that the global reserve currency has been fudging numbers the, like the fallout of this and the amount of misallocation, it is simply not possible to imagine. It is so vast. I mean, there's nothing comparable in history. Like the Roman Empire is so jealous right now by what we have managed to pull off. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, it's at the direct benefit of the banks and governments and at the cost of everybody else. Um, but it will get corrected because it's a lie. You know, like, like the idea of like the reason a lie is a lie is because it is misaligned with reality. And there's only so long that you can tell yourself a lie before, you know, the train hits you, you know, you can tell yourself you're not sitting on the train tracks, but if you are, you know, you're going to get hit. Like there's, it is explicitly because you are rejecting what is the truth, what is real. And eventually it is going to punch you in the face. Um, the longer you ignore it. Um, but so, so there's no, there's no way to keep it going. Like they can keep papering over it, but the reality is I mean, we're, we're living through it right now. You know, we see the reality. They can fudge the numbers. The stock market can go up 20% and they can, <laughs> that, did you see the, the, the screenshot from CNBC on, um, uh, what was it? Jim Cramer show, uh, that, mm -mm. that showed, uh, in the background, there was like Dow has the best week ever since like oh my 1931 or something like that since the great depression. And then, and then there was a breaking at the bottom that, uh, uh, we had like 16 million or 20 million people file for unemployment. Yeah. I mean, just the disconnect, right? Like that, how can the numbers, how can the stock numbers go up while you have this many people? Everybody's about filing to have for unemployment. Yeah, the whole the whole economy just filed for unemployment. Nobody's got any productivity. Nobody's going to have profit this quarter. 
everything is in disarray. The economy has been halted and the stock market had the best week ever. Like, <laughs> Yeah, if that doesn't tell you that it's fake, then <laughs> I don't know what to do for you. It's a lie. It's just a lie. It's, it's, a, it's, it's politics telling us what's true when... I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's just one of those things. It will get So what do you what do you think's going to happen? I mean, on on do you think this will be Do you think they'll be able to to quote unquote pull it off like they did in 08 this time or do you think there you know, there will actually be a reckoning this time or Man, I've gone back and forth. Um I mean, to some degree there was a reckoning last time. Like since 2008, like all this perceived everything's fine has also been met with very stagnant standard of livings, living, um, uh, significant decreases in the middle class, uh, much higher divorce rates. Like, like when the consequences are actually everywhere, we didn't really get out of it last time. We just extended the pain until like with this, you know, fake perception of wealth in our in the asset and like derivative classes like in stock markets and securities and all that stuff and then you know the bubble popped again but i'm inclined to think more and more like a lot of people keep saying you know like we'll just paper our way out of this and i will be i'll continuously be surprised i'm sure by how well they can cover up the truth of what's going on. And the fact that the dollar is still the world reserve currency gives them more leeway because, you know, if a country, if, if a country is just, their currency is just used within their country, if they print, you know, half their currency like overnight, then there's going to be massive inflation because it's isolated to that country. But if you've got the world reserve currency and you print, you know, half your currents, you know, you double your uh, currency, um, supply or whatever overnight for your country, like internal to the country. If the whole rest of the world is buying up dollars, you see like 2% of it, you know, like you, you get away with so much more imbalance because you're spreading it to your ex you're exporting it to everybody. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm certain that I will be surprised by how long they can keep the facade up. But the problem is, is the longer they keep it up, the more painful the fallout will be. Um, just like this one has been so much sharper and more painful than the one in 2008. Um, and, you know, certainly didn't help that it happened. Uh, it was triggered by Corona. Um, you know, if it was a hurricane and it only lasted three days uh, that caused it, well, then, you know, it might not be, you know, nearly as uh, violent um, in the short term. But I, I, I wonder if we'll have like kind of a new norm of just things even worse. Um, Middle-class getting hurt even harder. Um, Price inflation at the retail level, at the consumer level, getting a lot sharper than it has been. Um, And jobs recovering very, very slowly. The worse they try to paper over it, the slower and the more painful the recovery will be. I mean, that's what they did in the Great Depression. You know, they, they tried to paper over everything. They tried to get the government to, you know, the new deal, let's build bridges that nobody needs and buildings that are going to be empty. Um, let's pay for all this stuff. Let's, that's what they do. And what do we get? A 10 year depression. We got, we got a decade of stagnant growth of pain and hurt because the economy wasn't allowed to 
adjust. Um, and we could end up in that same, same era or that, that same situation, like the bank of Japan in 1989, um, we're kind of in a very similar situation aside from the fact that we have the world reserve currency, so we can extend it further out, but they had what was referred to as the lost decade. And then they had what turned into the lost two decades and they never actually had their stock market recover. Um, well, yeah, so I was going to ask all time high. Yeah, I was going to ask earlier. I mean, isn't that what happened in Japan where the government is directly buying up mm-hmm. corporate stock? Yeah, they ended up like nationalizing 30% of the economy just because the government was trying to prop up prices and they still never made it back to the all-time high. So we don't necessarily have to. We could end up in a situation like Venezuela where the stock market is surging because their currency is going to crap. Um, or we could end up in a situation like Bank of Japan where the stock market never recovers the government nationalizes everything by printing money and buying it all because nobody else is buying it. Um, and things are just stagnant and, uh, growth is highly stifled for God forbid another decade. Um, but therein lies the interesting situation we find ourselves in is this time Bitcoin exists. Right. Um, like we've got an escape valve. Uh, that is actually sustainable, that works on a global level, that does not have the physical problem of gold of being easy to centralize and confiscate, um, which is how gold essentially failed in its sound money uh, proposition. You know, um, it was too easy to control uh, and eventually became centralized, even though it's it's a brilliant physical scarcity. It is sound money, but it unfortunately cannot stand up to powerful centralized governments, but Bitcoin has the potential to do that, to give us real pricing to like, you know, when Bitcoin as a liquid asset, it got sold off right during the crash, like heavily, right? Like 50% decline. Well, that's because our price, our uh, price discovery is immediate. It's real. Like you can't fake the sale and withdrawal of Bitcoin. So it's a liquid asset that had to get sold off to prop up somebody else's leverage somewhere, Um, which means that we're going to have real prices, which means that we're going to have more fluid and realistic economic activity. It's going to encourage people to save and buy Bitcoin when, uh, when it's time to save and buy Bitcoin and then sell it when it's time to sell it. Uh, And in doing so, we could very well see this growth of this gray economy, this global alternative economy that will simply outproduce the legacy one because we have real prices and we have real market indicators like that's kind of the agorist vision is that the free market if it can be protected by sound money will out will eventually just outproduce a controlled unsound money so hopefully you know fingers crossed that's why i'm here that's what I'm betting on. Um, I, don't, I don't see how it makes any sense to bet on the other. <laughs> yeah. like we already know it's failing and it's going to have the same outcome that it did last time, even if we do manage to paper over it. Um, so it's all just a ticking time bomb. I just don't want to be holding the hot potato. I just, I, I will, if I will simply step out of that game. I don't want to play hot potato. I'll play. Right. Let's have real food. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just, no, I, I think they'll, I guess my concern or my question maybe, and 
it's just like how long can they keep doing this before um before the social unrest happens right yeah. i mean it and and i mean broadly in america right mm-hmm. we see it in other mm-hmm. countries that where you you totally jack up your economy quickly and and you you end up with the social unrest and the social upheaval but at what point you know the the tone deaf attitude of people like Mnuchin who sit there and say like, Oh, I, I think $1,200 can last the American family 10 weeks. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Who lives on 120? What family? Oh, God. You know, I don't even know. You know, if you're a single person splitting your apartment four ways and living only on top ramen, you, you might, might be able to live on $120 a week. Yeah. In That's- a cheap city. If you ate ramen and did nothing. And did not like just sat there eating, (laughs) eating ramen and assuming that, you know, your water was your water bill was included in your apartment rental. I don't know. But like in your what you had five hundred dollar rent, like you all sat in the slept in the same bed in the same room. Yeah. I mean, like I live in a in a place with a relatively low cost of living. And there is no way that, you know my family could survive on $1,200 for three weeks, two weeks, maybe, maybe. And that's like, we would have to sell a bunch of stuff. Yeah. The political class is so disconnected from reality. It's unbelievable. I mean, think about it. How many people like, so we've had 21 million now, I think jobs like unemployment claims in like three weeks time. How many of those are government employees? Mm, None probably. I don't, I've not, not heard of any government institution having to cut back or fire people. You know Definitely why? not any federal government. Yeah. Like they have not, they don't have to pay the cost because it doesn't matter if they have the resources for it. It doesn't matter if they're destroying productivity, if they're running losses all the time and we're putting 10 hours of work to get six hours back. It doesn't matter for them because they're in control of the number game. Like they you know they print um and therein lies the dichotomy like we're paying for all of that and the more resources they destroy the the harder we have to the faster we run on that treadmill to go nowhere um but i mean i hope god i hope that you know it will just correct like i'd rather just rip the band-aid off and just be done with it but the the pain that will come out of this um you know either they'll drag it on for a while but i think it will turn against them very quickly because the bigger the imbalance the more just one person going against it like the 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 dollar has become a political weapon now they're they're using the the fed wire system globally to control which country countries behaviors like to say you should do this or you should sign this agreement or we're not going to process transactions to you and they need dollars to um you know buy oil buy international resources because you know it's like 80 percent of the trade happens in dollars so they have to have dollars somebody has to give them dollars and they're reliant on the fed wire system to do that um that's how we ended up with a global banking system essentially so now that it's becoming a political tool it's all the more important that places like iran China, Russia, India, everybody that doesn't have a reliable relationship with the U.S., find an alternative. 
like to tr- try to figure out how to talk, call Russia and be like, I'd like to buy oil from you and something other than the dollar because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get those next year. Who knows? Like they're, they're deciding who, whether or not we elect person A or person B as to whether or not we get dollars. Um, and that is a dangerous game to play. Um, because when money becomes, is no longer independent, then it no longer can actually keep, it can't work. Economic activity doesn't work. Um, and they will increasingly seek to stop using it. And I think we're seeing the cracks in the dollar, the global dollar foundation, the, the reserve currency foundation. Um, and the more they do it and the more they print, the more people will, the more countries and large institutions will do everything they can to find some sort of an alternative or a hedge or an escape valve. And, you know, China makes an announcement that they're not going to pay back their dollar debts or they're not going to buy oil in dollars anymore or something, you know, any major country makes an announcement like that and it could cascade quickly. So it's really kind of left up to everyone else is in the macro environment. Is the U.S. weak enough to make that challenge now or do they wait and let America push, let, let the political sphere in the U S push them into another 10 years of dependency and stagnation. Um, so I think they're playing an incredibly dangerous game right now. Um, and we'll see how it unfolds, I guess. Yeah. The, the hard thing is that, you know, on the one hand you want to say like those countries should use Bitcoin, but of course the problem is that most yeah. of those countries are oppressive countries, and so they—it's not that I—it's not that you and I are saying they're good. Um, it's just that like we shouldn't be weapon. The, our the government of America shouldn't be weaponizing the U.S. dollar. Those countries are also have you know corrupt, oppressive governments, and so that's why they choose. You know, when they're when they're trying to buy up gold reserves, that's why they're not using Bitcoin. Is because if they use Bitcoin, then they would also lose the the control over their people. Yeah. Or, or, or some amount of control over their people. Yeah, it's a really interesting dichotomy because it is most likely to benefit um, uh, dictators and like oppressive countries and stuff in the short term if they went to it. But then at the same time, their long-term, their mid and long-term uh, incentives are to keep complete control over their population. So Bitcoin would be the absolute worst thing for them, but they might not see it that way. So, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting, Bitcoin is such an interesting, like weird independent player in all of this. Um, and, uh, what's funny is I was talking about it at, uh, I was at the Raleigh, it was one of the Raleigh meetups. Um, uh, how the funny thing is if any government, tries to take control of Bitcoin because another government is trying to use Bitcoin to get around some capital controls or sanctions or something like that. What's funny is that actually will over the long term make Bitcoin more secure because the only way to attempt to censor or control Bitcoin is to get a massive amount of mining power. And if you have huge government institutions competing for mining power, the more players you have competing over it, the more secure Bitcoin is. So yeah. they're all fighting to make Bitcoin more secure in order to have dominance over it. So Bitcoin becomes more independent 
because specifically people who hate each other are trying to control it and use it against them. Um, so it's a, it's God, the, the, when it really becomes a major player on the macro, like political environment and the geopolitical um, pressures between, between uh, around the world, it's going to be crazy to see how Bitcoin factors in all this. Um, and this will be the ultimate test, you know, like as it, as it moves into the trillion dollar ranges, that's when it finally meets the final boss, you know, <laughs> Uh, like uh, we've done a great job and it's been a fascinating run, uh, you know, for the first nine levels. Um, but the final boss is coming and it'll be really interesting to see. There is not a more interesting time to be alive. I feel like, like, like as much as it's painful and there's so much change, like, like I, I, I have a hard time being completely pessimistic about it because, oh yeah. The fact that things are changing and that we're seeing all these pressures means that they are correcting. It's when they're invisible and we're pretending that everything's great that the real damage is being done. This is the correction. This is when we're finding out that we made all these bad mistakes and we will stop making them, which means that we've actually got the greatest opportunity we've ever had at the exact, exact same time that we're paying the greatest cost for it. Um, so I'm actually hugely optimistic um, because, because of what Bitcoin represents and because of what is being exposed to people who've never even had to see or think about these things. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm very, very hopeful for the future despite all of this insanity. Um, and uh, that's why you know I made it my job to just teach about Bitcoin is because I think it's our best chance for the next stage in solving this problem awesome yeah so so what's next for you um well we're actually we're doing a rebrand of the show which i finally made uh, a public a week ago or so um but it's going to move over to bitcoin audible and um because i've been finding that a lot of bitcoiners have not been finding my show i don't turn up in any bitcoin searches and it's like basically a Bitcoin podcast, you know, like I don't really talk about much else. Um, yeah. And uh, so I figured I'd benefit from a rebrand. And in doing so, I'm going to make a lot of changes to the website. And I'm doing a lot of other projects. The crypto economy is the crypto economy is turning into a network. And uh, we've got uh, a lot of expansion coming, you know, potentially new shows in the not too distant future. Um uh, expansion, a little bit of Bitcoin audible and a lot, a lot to announce and a lot of fun stuff being built right now. My wife is helping me. She's much better organized <laughs> than I am. So, uh, she's taking charge of a lot of it too, which is really exciting. And, uh, yeah, a lot of fun stuff on the horizon, I think. Cool. So how can, how can people keep up with that and, and, and keep abreast of all the changes that are coming? Uh, easiest way is just Twitter at, uh, the crypto economy. Um, or you can check out the cryptoeconomy.com. It'll all be posted up there when I, uh, get the new website up and, uh, that will be the hub to basically get to all of it. Um, the Bitcoin education stuff, um, uh, all the new stuff that will be announced when, when we get there. Um, and also got a couple audiobooks coming very, very soon. One is waiting in the wings to get approved right now. 
uh, Inventing Bitcoin by Han, Hans, uh, excuse me, uh, Jan Pritzker. Um, and uh, uh, that one's amazing if you haven't heard it yet. Uh, like I said, GG's uh, will get posted on Audible. Uh, Knutz von Holm has another version, uh, another book coming out. I don't think he's released the name of it yet, so I won't I won't say. Uh, Masir uh, Mamadov uh, has got um, his most recent book. Uh, I haven't actually dug into it yet, but we're looks like we're going ahead. Um, this book will save you time. God, great perspective and analogy on it. So a lot of stuff on the audio front, so many things. Um, so keep an ear out for all of that. But yeah, thecryptoeconomy.com and at the cryptoeconomy on like everything. I think like Twitter, Instagram, and all that good stuff. <laughs> Sweet. All right, guy. Well, um, thanks for coming on and and kind of talking through all this with me. I, I think this is. I'm with you. I'm I'm optimistic, and that's kind of why I wanted to do this show. Is like, yes, there's pain, but I'm hoping that through this pain that um, hopefully we can reach some people and, and help them understand what Bitcoin is and, um, that there is another option out there. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a long time coming. We should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, we should have. That's all right. We did it now. We did so. it. There you go. <laughs> all right, man. Take care. Yeah, man. Later. All right. I hope you guys liked that episode. I think it's always important to remind ourselves why we Bitcoin and not just the technical details of how we Bitcoin. And, um, and, and I think this serves as a good, hopefully a good episode that you can share with your friends who still don't understand why we do this or um, are looking around and very confused at how um, a virus could have caused an economic meltdown. Um, and, and this will serve as a good kind of easy entry to understanding um why the economy was so fragile to begin with that something like this could could um, topple the house of cards. So if you guys aren't listening to the crypto economy, uh, you're probably wasting a bunch of your time reading articles. Um, um, guy's great, and he does a great job of reading those articles all the time. Um, you can save yourself time if that's your thing. I mean, I know some people prefer just to actually read the articles, but um, anyways... I like the Crypto Economy podcast. It's great. Um, so give Guy a follow. Go go uh, subscribe to his podcast. And um, we talked about several things in there. And so I've linked him in the show notes, his episodes where he goes over Leonard Reed's iPencil, um, as well as he's got uh, two episodes. You know, he goes he broke it up into two parts, but um, Hayek's Use of Knowledge in Society, um, just a great um, kind of foundational um, work where he talks about um, price serving as um, a source of information. So great stuff there. Um, and I included links to Dan Held's planting Bitcoin as well. The other thing I wanted to remind you guys, um, you know, if you're, if you've listened to the show long enough, you've heard me talk about Tuttle Twins. It's a, it's a series of books by Connor Boyack where um, these twins kind of get into different scenarios and it discusses ideas of liberty and free market economics and these things. And, um, um, there's one about the pencil. They go to a pencil factory, but then they have to talk about like all the things that happened before to make the the pencil come together. And uh, it, and it's it's kind of a a broken down um, version of Leonard Reed's eye pencil. And then the other one is the creature from Jekyll Island. I know that um, Guy had mentioned that in the interview. And there's actually a a creature from Jekyll Island. Um, 
book in the Tuttle Twins series. So you can find both of those um, in any of the Tuttle Twins books from um, if you go to bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash kidsbook. Um, it doesn't change the price of the book, um, but I get a little uh, kickback if you use my reference link. So that's that's there for you and me. <laughs> um, all right. You know the drill. Um, you can always, uh, the best thing you can do is share the show out with everybody. Shill it to all your friends. And, uh, and then, you know, there's financial ways to support through Bitcoin. Um, if you, if you go to, uh, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash donate, you can see all the links there. And, uh, other than that, follow me on Twitter at bottomshelfbtc. Got a couple good interviews coming up, so stick around, come back for those. Until next time, for Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening.